We did have a great Easter celebration last week, beginning with the Palm Sunday and Master's Chorale, the Good Friday service, and then uh, the Easter service Sunday morning. That was wonderful. But I'm uh, also pleased to be able to get back to the book of Romans and uh, continue our tour through this book. We are continuing here with the hard news, the bad news, the difficult news. The good news is that that will last for a long time. And uh, but that's okay. God wants it that way. You know, one of the uh, age-old Christ- or questions that Christians have to face, I'm sure that many of you have either asked this question at one point in your life or had someone ask it to you, and that is, uh, what about the innocent native in Africa or Asia or you pick the country, right? What if they have never heard the gospel? Never heard the gospel. Are they still responsible before God? How can such people be expected to honor and glorify God if they've never heard about him. They don't know him. They don't know he's there. I mean, do they really deserve the wrath of God in hell? Seems a bit extreme, doesn't it? Are they really that bad? Are they really that bad? What about the noble savage? Ever heard that expression? The noble savage. What about in the first century when the Apostle Paul repeatedly tried to go east with the Gospel into Asia, but the Holy Spirit stopped him and sent him west into Philippi and Greece and on from there? What about the hundreds of millions of Asians who died before the 19th century and the great missionary movements of the Western church found their way into those countries to bring them the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, what about them? Others have questions that deal with those who are atheists or agnostics. I mean, what if God has not left enough evidence to convince them? And that's kind of the, eighth, or the agnostic position that they stake out, right? I don't know whether God is or isn't. There's not enough evidence for me to make a decision one way or another. Perhaps he's left no evidence at all. That's another position some would take. Do we need elaborate evidence or, or arguments to prove the existence of God to the atheist? Is that our approach? Those ones who declare there is no God, is, is, are we to come to them with these mountain of evidence and elaborate arguments and show them how they're wrong? What about the people who are just unconcerned? They're just not concerned about it all. Maybe they've never thought very much about God. Are they accountable too? Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. We're going to address these questions and others 
In verses 19 and 20, Romans chapter 1, if you're using a pew Bible, it will be page 1126. We're just looking at two verses this morning, verses 19 and 20. And as we look at these verses together, and and this morning is going to be a little bit more of a teaching time than a preaching time. But as we look at these verses together, there are five inescapable characteristics of God's general revelation that we're going to see here in these two verses. And the reason that we need to see these inescapable characteristics is so that we will recognize that all unbelief is without excuse. All unbelief is without excuse. Beginning in verse 18, let me just read the text for you. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Paul is very clear in these verses. Very, very clear. The condition of all of humanity. And that's what I want to explore with you this morning. You know, in verse 18, he indicts all of humanity, right? He talks about the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, plural. That is all of mankind. He says that it's without exception, they are all guilty of something. And what they are guilty of, he says in verse 18, is suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. That is, holding it down, restraining that which they already know. They hold it back. And he is going to, this morning in verses 19 and 20, he's going to give the evidence or the proof for this charge, this indictment of verse 18. Verse 18 indicts every one of us, all of humanity, every single person who has ever lived and will ever live on this planet falls under that great indictment. And so Paul needs to substantiate the charge. And that's what he's going to do in verses 19 and 20. Now, maybe what I ought to do for you this morning is begin by defining a couple of terms. Okay, so let me do that. Let me define some terms for you as we begin to look. Revelation is the way that God discloses himself to mankind. It's how God discloses himself. And basically, he does it in one of two ways. All right, he discloses himself in one of two ways. One is what's called special revelation. The other is what's called general revelation. So we have special and general revelation. And you need to, to uh, if you're not already conversant with these terms, you need to think with me here, listen, and maybe jot a couple of things down because it'll be important to carry that understanding with you this morning as we look at these two verses. So first, uh, general revelation. Let me define that for you. It used to be called, uh, in the olden days, natural revelation. So you might hear it have called that before, but it's generally called general revelation, typically called general revelation today. And it's called general because it is available to all people generally. Okay? 
It is available to all people generally without exception. Everybody has access to the general revelation of God. Now, general revelation is limited in terms of its content of the information that is conveyed. Okay, so that's an important thing to know. It doesn't convey everything exhaustively, but what it does convey, it conveys conclusively. All right, so it's generally available. That means everybody has access to it. And its information, although limited, is, is, uh, is, very, is very much uh, conclusive with regard to that. The sources of general revelation are twofold. They are internal and external. They are internal and external. The internal source of general revelation is typically thought to be twofold. One is the innate sense of deity that all people have. There's this innate sense, uh, something you probably have heard it called a God-shaped vacuum in a human heart, perhaps. There's a, a sense that all people have that God is really there. And that is, that is an internal um, understanding, some uh, related to the Imago Dei, the very image of God that has been stamped on our soul. Okay? The other source of general revelation internally is what's called conscience. People have a conscience. So we have the, uh, the imago dei, the sense of deity within, and we have our conscience. This is the, intern the internal revelation of, of uh, certain information about God. Okay? And then there is external. There's an external source. The external source is nature and history. Nature and history. This is general because it's available to everybody, right? Everybody lives on this planet has access to nature. Everybody also has access to history. God's providential working through history. So it's through the innate sense of God, the God-shaped vacuum within our heart. It's through our conscience. It's through the creation that we can look out and see all around us. And it is through God's providential working in history that all people know God is there. That is general revelation. Special revelation, and you just jot this down so you can work in these terms. Special revelation is God's manifestation of Himself to and through, to and through certain individuals. And it is thus not generally available to all people. Okay, it's more specific, it's more limited. Special revelation communicates truths that are essential to salvation. The salvation truths are a product of what's called special revelation, and they are manifest to and through certain individuals. Things such as man's sinful predicament and God's gracious provision of a deliverer would be examples of special revelation that are not available to everybody at all times. There are two sources of special revelation. One is the incarnation, right? Jesus came and took on human flesh that we might know the Father. That's what John 1 says, right? He has explained Him. Literally, He has exegeted the Father, John 1.18. The other source, and uh, since you and I weren't there to experience the incarnation, right, personally... The other source is God's spoken and written word. It is God's spoken and written word. So two sources of the special revelation that comes of God. 
That is the incarnation of Jesus Christ and God's spoken and written word. God is no longer speaking today. He has finished what he wanted to say and he closed, put down the pen and closed it at the end of Revelation. And so for us today, if we want to know God's special revelation, it is available to you between the covers of your Bible. All right, so we've got those first things clarified. Now, we are looking this morning at general revelation. That's what verses 19 and 20 is all about. It is about general revelation. And as I said, there are five inescapable characteristics of general revelation that are given to us here in this text. And we need to to understand these in order to understand the reason for Paul's indictment of all of mankind that say they suppress the truth. And are thus guilty before their creator. They are without excuse. So here they are. Number one. Okay. Number one inescapable characteristic of general revelation is it is clear. It is clear. No one can miss it. Okay. Number one, it's clear. Simple as that. For that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them, drop down to verse 20, having been clearly seen. Okay? Now, we need to look at a point of grammar here. In verse 19, it says, because that which is known about God is evident within them. The preposition in, translated here in the New American Standard as within. And it is interpreted by some as talking about the knowledge of God that is innate within mankind. We said that general revelation is innate within us. There is a God-shaped vacuum in the human heart. And some would look to this verse to evidence that. All right. But I don't think that is what he's talking about here. I think verses 19 and 20 are very tightly woven together and then roll down into verses 21 to 23 where he is talking about idolatry and the creation. And so I think he is making a different point here in verse 19 and the preposition should not be translated as within, but among. You might find that in the margin note if you use the New American Standard. They do it. I didn't check the other translations to see what they do as well. But I think the better translation here is because that which is known about God is evident among them. Among them. Paul will talk about the innate sense of God within people. He will talk about conscience, but he will do that in chapter 2. Okay? So he will bring that point forward, but I think he wastes the chapter 2 to do that. Here in chapter 1, I think he's talking about something else. I think what he is saying here is that that which is known about God is evident to all men. That is, that it is plainly visible to everybody. Plainly visible, it is evident among them. Among them. Alright, question. How is that which is known about God evident among all men? How is that possible? How could this body of knowledge, and he hasn't described what it is for us yet, but this body of knowledge, how could it be possible that it is evident among all men? And we use the word men here. Uh, we are speaking generically of humanity, Okay? So it's evident among all men, women, boys, girls. Okay? All humanity. How is it that that which is known is evident among all people? Is it by random occurrence? Is that how it happens? If so, could somebody miss it? 
Is it just a random thing? You know, you, you, know, you might see it, you might not see it. Like driving down the freeway, you know, there's a big um, uh, billboard on the side of the freeway. You might see it. You, you know, you might be looking the other way and you might not see it. Is that what he is talking about here? Well, look again, verse 19, and Paul will make sure that you understand that that which is known about God is evident among them. Why? For God has made it evident to them. God is actively involved. That's the point. God is actively involved in making this knowledge known. People see the evidence. They receive the knowledge because God makes sure that all people can and do. And that's huge. Okay, that's a very important point. And Paul labors it here so that we make sure we understand it. It's not just like a billboard on the side of the freeway that you may or may not see. It's like you're surrounded with billboards. Okay, They're all around you. They're above you. They're below you. And they speak to you. All right? They cry out to you. You cannot miss it. You cannot miss it. Down in verse 20, we pointed out already, they have been clearly seen. And he says it again. They have been clearly seen. It's interesting there, by the way, uh, Paul uses a literary device called an oxymoron. That is, that you take two concepts that appear to conflict with each other and you put them together, and that uh, heightens people's awareness. Some people say that uh, the term military intelligence is an oxymoron. Um, some people say that. I would not say that. But some people do. But anyway, Paul here says that, right, that the invisible attributes of verse 20 are clearly seen. Okay? Invisible attributes clearly seen. And he's doing that to make sure that we understand and, and uh, what he's talking about here. He heightens the contrast of what it is that people see. God has not hidden the evidence. He's not strewn it about sparingly. He's extravagantly put it on full display. The evidence of God is on full display. Where? Where is it on full display, right? And based upon this evidence, what is it that all men know about God? Where is it on display? What is the evidence? And what is it that people know about God? These are questions we need to answer. Well, it's first clear, we've said, but let me keep working here. Second characteristic after clear is that it is confined or limited. It is confined or limited in its scope. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world is invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Beginning the verse here with four ties it tightly into verse 19. That's what leads me to believe, by the way, in verse 19, that the preposition is should be translated among and not within. He's talking about creation. He's talking about creation, and creation is widely available among all of humanity. What he's saying is that humanity clearly knows God through His creation. Okay, in a, in a short sentence, that's what he's talking about. Humanity clearly knows God through His creation. That's why all people, Paul can say very confidently, that all people no God. Because all people are exposed to His creation. Isn't that true? And so even though the Apostle Paul turned west, not east, and for a couple of hundred, well, more than a couple of hundred years, whatever it was, 1,800 years, 
The East was not, uh, did not have the access to the Gospel that the West has. Still, the people in the East clearly knew God. Or at least something about Him. Now, it says, since the creation of the world, verse 20, His invisible attributes have been clearly seen. His invisible attributes. What are these invisible attributes? Well, we have an appositional phrase here. His eternal power and divine nature. That's why when I read the text for you, I said, for instance, since the beginning of the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen. What Paul is doing is defining for us here the very limited or confined nature of the general revelation. There are two things that people know about God. Okay? His eternal power and they know about His divine nature. That's what they know. They know about His eternal power, and they know about His divine nature. Everybody knows that. What is eternal power? Eternal power refers to God's sovereign power of creation and the providence by which He sustains it and controls it. Okay, So it's talking about God's sovereign creative power and by which He brought everything into existence and by which He now sustains and controls that which He has brought into existence. That is His eternal power. For example, Genesis chapter 8, verse 22. The, uh, uh, we are told uh, there in the Word of God that while the earth remains... Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. That is that all humanity knows about these things, right? They know that it gets cold in the winter, it gets hot in the summer. They know that there is, you know, the sun sets and it is night and then the sun comes up and it is day. Everybody knows these kinds of things. They know that there is a time to plant and there is a time to harvest, right? These things are known everywhere by all people. And these uh, realities point to the sovereign Creator. Turn with me to uh, Isaiah chapter 40. Let me show you how the prophet Isaiah picks up on this. Isaiah 40, page 722 in that pew Bible. Isaiah 40, verse 21. The prophet Isaiah will leverage off of this reality as he speaks to the nation. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? You see, he's making the same argument. It is he who sits above the vault of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretch out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither and the storm carries them away like stubble. What he's saying is that governments rise and governments fall. Leaders come and leaders go. To whom then will you liken me that I should be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name 
Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Now, there's a mouthful there, and we're not going to pull that all apart. But we'll just focus for a moment on that last expression. What the prophet is saying is go out into the night sky and count the stars. And then go back out the next day and count them again, and you will find that there is the same number. Okay, there is a there is a consistency to this creation. There is a there is a predictability to this creation. And all people know it. All people know it. And that demonstrates to them the reality of who God is. Back to Romans one. Paul kind of leverages off this concept as well in Acts 17, verse 28, when he is speaking there to the Athenians. He says, for in him that is in God, we live and move and exist, as even some of your own prophets have said, for we also are his offspring. That is, we are dependent upon this sovereign creator who created us and sustains us. We know about his eternal power. Secondly, we know about his divine nature. We know about his divine nature. Now, this term appears to refer to sort of the sum of all of God's glorious attributes that are revealed in creation. This is a creation argument that he's making here. Things like God's kindness, his faithfulness and his graciousness would be examples of the divine attributes of God that are revealed through creation. Again, Paul leverages off of this Acts 14 verses 15 through 17. When um, there the uh, pagans are trying to worship he and Barnabas, he says, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And in the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And yet he did not leave himself without witness. And that he did good and gave rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. That is, God sends the rain, right? Seed time and harvest. People plant according to the calendar, right? The seasonal calendar. And they know that God will send certain amounts of rain at certain times. The sun will shine and warm the earth. The seeds will sprout and bring forth the plant that will yield the grain to feed their bellies. And they know this. This points them to their Creator. So, general revelation communicates clearly. Very clearly, but it does not communicate extensively. Okay, And that's an important point. It does not communicate extensively. It tells what it tells about God is true and is known, but it is not an extensive communication about God. And that's only kind of logical, because if it was an extensive communication leading on to salvation, we could bring all the missionaries home, couldn't we? Because creation exists everywhere. So it doesn't communicate with regard to salvation. We said that before. It doesn't tell us some of the uh, invisible attributes of God are not uh, detailed for us, such as the fact that he is triune. The triune God is not revealed in creation that he would send his only begotten son as a deliverer is not revealed in creation. That the deliverer would die as a substitutionary atonement and then rise on the third day to lead his people to glory is not revealed in the creation. OK, so there's much that is not revealed, but there are those things that are revealed and they're revealed clearly. So it's clear, it's confined, 
Third, it is constant. It is constant. This revelation of God, this knowledge of God is constant. It's not just intermittent. It's not like you get it when you're young and if you missed it when you're young, sorry, too bad, right? You drove past the freeway billboard and you missed it, you'll never see it again. Okay, it's not that way. It is constant. Verse 20 again, for since the creation of the world is invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Notice Paul says that it goes from the creation of the world. That takes you back to Genesis chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right. So it is constant from the moment of creation forward. It continues forward as you walk outside after this service and you look anywhere you will see God's creation. Isn't that true? You will see the creation of God. And thus, you will be brought into account before God who made that creation. Turn with me again back into the Old Testament to uh, Psalm 19. Take a look at Psalm 19, page 561. Using a pew Bible. David, the psalmist, speaks of these things. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6. Actually, Psalm 19 is a tremendous psalm because verses 1 through 6 talk about God's general revelation and then verses 7 through the end, pardon me, talk about God's special revelation. So you've got both special and general revelation right there in one psalm. Would have preached this psalm, but it's not part of Romans. So, um, but we'll refer to it. Psalm 19, all right? Verse 1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. That is, it is not an audible voice. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. In them He has placed a tent for the sun which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. It's rising as from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The idea here is when it talks about a strong man, the bridegroom coming out of his chamber, this is the guy on his way to pick up his bride, okay? Nothing's going to hold him back. That's the point. Okay, it's the wedding day, and he's ready to get her. And so nothing is going to interfere and stop him, and that's the way the sun is, isn't it? Nothing prevents the sun from rising day by day. Now, there may be tremendous cloud cover, okay, but it still rises. All right, and that's the point that the psalmist makes here in Psalm 19. Go back to Romans. Same idea. There is a constant revealing of this knowledge of God, constantly. Amos chapter 5, verse 8, It is He who made Pleiades and Orion and changes deep darkness into morning, who also darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is His name, the prophet says. Same kind of idea, right? That is, it is the Lord who scatters the stars in the sky. It is the Lord who calls forth the sun to break the darkness every single day. It is the Lord who sends forth the rain on the earth. Right, So there is a constant revealing of who God is. The heavens declare the glory of God. 
The telescope just brings it into sharper focus, lets you look a little deeper, okay? But you don't need a telescope to see the glories of God revealed. But it is not just out there that it is revealed. It is revealed in a much closer sense as well. The myriad of living organisms declare the glory of God. All that inhabits this planet, including you and I, God's highest creation. Do me a favor, look at your hand. I want you to look at your hand for a moment. Examine it. Think about the complexity in just this hand. With your hand, you could crush a Coke can. And with that same hand, you could pick up a grape. With that hand, you can swing a hammer. With that hand, you could reach down and, as I did last night, pick up live ladybugs and put them on my roses without crushing them. For some of you, you could punch your hand through a board, a piece of sheetrock. With that same hand, you could caress the face of your child or your grandchild. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? Touch your fingers. Sensitive to heat, cold, pleasure, pain. It's all right there, right before you. In your hand, if you will but stop and think about it. Where did it come from? What does it tell you? Paul says it tells you that there is a God. And not just a God, the God. We need to clarify that, by the way, there in verse 19, so in case someone comes up to me afterwards. Because that which is known about God, not a God, not a higher power, not an unknown God, God is known about God is evident among us. Okay? So together, the, the, these expressions, this idea of, of, his, uh, of His eternal power and His divine nature communicate something about who God is that all men see and understand. The idea is that the God who made me ought to be worshipped. The God who made me ought to be worshipped. The God who scattered the heavens with all of those bright lights ought to be worshipped. The God who causes the sun to rise every single morning with such consistency that I can set my alarm clock to it ought to be worshipped. The God who sends the rain and causes the seed that I have planted in the ground. I mean, you think about planting for a moment, right? You dig a hole in the ground and you bury something. Right? In hopes that what? Out of that teeny little seed will come forth massive life. Because the God who created it causes it to happen. All of these things, the Apostle is saying, should drive us to the worship of the one true God. Characteristics of general revelation is it is constant. It is everywhere. It's screaming at us. Grammatically, that point, by the way, is made here very clearly. There are present, there are present tense verbs used here. Is evident, clearly seen, being understood. Those are all present tense verbs. Speaks of the constancy of what's going on here. It's not just somebody saw it once a long time ago and told you about it. Okay, You're seeing it yourself new every day. You know, it's this constancy that allows you to go to bed last night 
and not even worry about was the sun going to come up this morning, right? Did anybody go to bed fearful? Thinking, well, gee, maybe tomorrow it won't happen. You don't even give a thought to it. You know it's going to happen. And that knowledge should point you to God. It's clear. It's confined. It's constant. Fourth, it's comprehended. It's comprehended. And this is the, this is the hinge on which this whole section turns and causes people to be accountable. Okay, It is comprehended. The idea is people get it. People get it. Verse 20, being understood through what has been made. Do you see that? Being understood. Well, well, maybe Paul, you know, yeah, okay, it's there, it's, it's available in creation, but, but maybe people just don't get it, right? Maybe they see it, but they misinterpret it. Therefore, they're not guilty. They're not accountable. Paul says, oh, no. No, no, no. See, God made it evident to them. God makes sure that it is understood. That it is comprehended. They get it. The idea here is is that their entire mental and moral being comes to play in this. Okay, This is not just a little passing thing. Implicit in, in this uh, that, that they uh, um, it's clearly understood is the idea of contemplation. People contemplate the creation. They contemplate it. They not only notice it, they analyze it. And they draw conclusions from it. It's all part of being understood. But see, their sin lies not in that they draw incorrect conclusions. Their sin lies that they do they draw correct conclusions from the evidence of creation. But, verse 18, what do they do with it? They suppress it. They hold it down. They hold it back. They refuse to receive the truth that they clearly know. And that leaves them accountable to God. I went looking this week for a few quotes. I found a couple of interesting ones. Here's a quote from H.S. Uh, Lipson, professor of physics at the University of Manchester. Okay, so it was in a, in a speech, I believe, in 1980. He says, in fact, evolution became, in a sense, a scientific religion. Almost all scientists have accepted it, and many are prepared to bend their observations to fit in with it. Fascinating, isn't it? Or how about uh, David Pilbeam, physical anthropologist at Yale University? He writes, quote, I know that at least in paleoanthropology, data are still so sparse that theory heavily influences interpretations. Theories have in the past clearly reflected our current ideologies instead of actual data. Now, this is, these are quotes from, from leading evolutionists. And what they are telling you is, we have seen the evidence, and it doesn't fit with what we want to believe is true, therefore we bend the evidence, or we discount it, or we disregard it altogether. For since the creation of the world, 
His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. They know the truth. They know the truth. But they suppress it. They hold it down. People know God is there. They know that He is good. That He's kind. That He's gracious. He's powerful. And yet they want nothing to do with Him. They want nothing to do with Him. Rather than drawing them to Him, they instead suppress the truth about Him. And as Paul will elaborate beginning next week, they create all kinds of explanations and alternatives to the true worship of Him. Revelation of God in nature is clear. It is confident or confined or limited. It is constant. It is comprehended. And all people distort it and therefore are guilty before their Creator. By the way, uh, we're not just talking about people out there, right? We're talking about you. We're talking about me. Same predicament. Before the, the Lord Jesus Christ redeemed you and changed your way of thinking, completely made you new, this is exactly the state you were in too. And that leads us to the fifth inescapable characteristic of general revelation. It is condemnatory. It is condemnatory. The end of verse 20. So that they are without excuse. So that they are without excuse. Now the meaning of this last phrase is somewhat open to discussion. Some commentators and good commentators believe that it is expressing result. Result, meaning that uh, God is there. He has revealed Himself clearly. People clearly see Him. People clearly understand who He is. But they refuse Him. So the result is they are without excuse and condemned. Okay? And there are many fine commentators that think that that's the point He's making here. Others say that no, it is not expressing result. It is expressing purpose. It is expressing purpose. God is there. God has clearly revealed Himself. Mankind has clearly seen Him. Mankind clearly understands who He is. Mankind clearly suppresses that truth for the purpose that all of them will be without excuse. Guilty. That God provides general revelation in order to make all the sons of Adam condemned. To bring them under Condemnation. I happen to be persuaded that, that is what he's saying here. So let me offer you my evidences. And then let's talk about the significance of that. Grammatically, the uh, construction here, and I don't get too much into it, but the, the preposition ace used with the infinitive verb in the Apostle Paul's writings, it's used I think 49 times, and it is weighted towards Purpose, not results. So the grammatical construction here is weighted towards purpose. 
And what that does is that suggests, as I say, the general revelation does not merely result in people being without excuse, but has its purpose in rendering people excuseless, if that's a word. General revelation leads not to salvation, but it leads to condemnation by design. By design. Its purpose is to condemn all of us. Now, that's a big pill to swallow, isn't it? It kind of introduces us to the theological conundrum that is expressed in the phrase, ought does not imply can. You can write that down and think about it. Ought does not imply can. Just because we are responsible to do something does not mean we are able to do that for which we are responsible. Now, Americans don't like that. Okay? That is a def- definitely an un-American statement. And I will acknowledge that right up front. Okay? But I believe it is very much a biblical statement. Unbelievers ought not to sin. Would you grant me that? They should not sin. But they can't not sin. Isn't that true? Does the Bible say that they're enslaved to their sin? Ought does not imply can. What you should do in the eyes of God does not mean that that's what you can do. Therefore, you need a Savior. Therefore, you need a Savior. You realize that? If you are able to do what you are supposed to do, then you don't need a Savior. All you need is a little more education. Second chance. Better home environment. A little more encouragement. Maybe a reward. But if what you ought to do is what you are unable to do, then you need a Savior. You need someone to step in for you who can do it for you. General revelation, beloved, exposes the blackness of people's hearts. That's what it does. That's what it does. It exposes the unbelief that resides deep within their heart. Deep within yours and deep within mine. Every single one of us know the true God. And we have always known Him in this limited way. Yet we refused Him. Because deep down within our soul, we hate Him. We hate Him. That puts everybody under condemnation. Understand that? That makes the whole world accountable to God. Condemned. Back to verse 18. It justifies the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Why is God angry? The answer is very simple. He's angry because we all deserve His anger. Unless you think that maybe you don't, 
He has given you this evidence that merely exposes the deepness and darkness of your unbelief. How do we apply all of this? Let's talk about that. How do we apply this? Well, let me start with you. Question, are there any true atheists? Answer, no. No. There are no true atheists. There are only theists who claim to be atheists. Only theists who claim to be atheists. In reality, they know the God who is there and in their hatred of Him and their desire to live without Him, they suppress the truth that resides within their heart. They make up stuff about Him. Their intellectual problems are merely a covering for their sin. They may insist that the burden of proof for God lies with us, but in the reality it lies the burden that God is not there lies with them. It is their unproven assumption. Their unproven assumption. And it's an assumption that they make about life with which they cannot even consistently live themselves. I'll tell you that this universe is by random chance. Yet they live a life based upon its constancy. They get up in the morning and they squeeze the toothpaste tube. They do so with the expectation that something will come out. Because God has created an ordered and constant world. If this world were truly random, you could squeeze the toothpaste tube and get grape jelly one day. Right? Peanut butter the next. Great apologists gone on to be with the Lord in the earlier part of the 20th century, Cornelius Van Til used an illustration to talk about this. He said that the, uh, the unbeliever, the atheistic unbeliever, is like a little girl sitting on her father's lap, slapping him in the face. Fully and totally dependent upon him for support and insulting him left and right. Are there any true atheists? Not a chance. What about the innocent native in Africa? What's the answer? There aren't any. That's the answer. What about the innocent native in Africa? What will happen to them? The premise of the question is wrong. There are no innocent natives in Africa. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? There are no innocent natives anywhere. What are the implications for us of general revelation, particularly with regard to evangelism? Well, I think they're twofold. Number one, there's the apologetical implication for all of us. The apologetical implication. It goes like this. When you open your mouth to talk to somebody about God, you can do it with great confidence knowing that they already know the God you're talking about. Okay? They already know. They already know He's there. They know He exists. And they know something about what He's like. They have 
avoided the reality and the implications of that reality in various ways, but they knew that he's there, which means that you don't have to waste a bunch of time trying to come up with arguments to prove the existence of God. How's that? Okay, that's very freeing. By the way, the arguments, the classical arguments for the existence of God, teleological, cosmological, on and on and most, the only people they convince are believers. Okay? They only convince believers because we already know God's there. And so, yeah, wow, that's a good argument. <laughs> they don't convince unbelievers because their problem is not intellectual. Their problem is what? It's moral. They got a moral problem. So don't waste a bunch of time dealing with intellectual things that aren't real. They're smoke screens. <laughs> Blow them away and get to the real core of the matter, which is their heart. So when you talk to them, when you talk to people, you know that they're suppressing the truth. All you've got to do is draw that out. Draw that out and, and confront them with that reality. That they are suppressing the truth about God that they already know. Declare to them the one true God and how He can be savingly known. I, mean, just, I think you've got to be really pretty direct. The reason you don't believe is not because there's not enough evidence. The reason you don't believe is because you don't like God. Oh, no, 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 no. If I had enough evidence. No. It's not an evidence problem. It's a belief problem. It's a heart problem. You hate Him. You hate Him. So there's a tremendous apologetical advantage. You know, when you go door to door, if you've never gone door to door before, it's... It's really intimidating. You think, oh, I could never do this. What if I go to the door and they ask me some question I don't have the answer to? You got answers. You got all kinds of answers. You got the true answers. The the person behind the other door, they don't know anything. You know, they'll put up some defense, and once in a while you meet somebody with you know's got kind of an academic pedigree and they might have a little more elaborate defense than somebody else, but it's all the same stuff. Just blow it away and get to the real heart of the issue. That's why that stripe is on the front there, you know. It's like SeaWorld. That's the splash zone, so stay outside that, you know. You, you know the answers. And you know that they know the God whom you are there to declare. So you're just declaring that which they already know to be true. Final implication, I think, with regard to evangelism for this, is there's a sense of urgency here. There is a sense of urgency here. All the world lies guilty and condemned without excuse. Their only hope of redemption lies not in general revelation. They're not going to get it from the stars. They're not going to get it from the contemplation of the hand or their navel. They're going to miss the one true God, and they are guilty and are on their way to hell because there is salvation in no one else because there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. They need to hear that redemption comes only through Jesus Christ. So there is a sense of urgency that attaches to this knowledge. Locally and internationally. We need to tell people. The missionary endeavor of the church is essential. 
You know, earlier in the service we read from Revelation 4, right? It was a grand and glorious place. We're all going to be there. Most of you are going to be doing, I think, what you're doing now, singing and worshiping. I'm the guy who's out of a job. You know, I'm not, I don't have anything more to say when we get there. You know, and it, it'd be great to be there now, wouldn't it? But he left us here because we got a purpose. We got a reason. We got something to do. Every week uh, near the end of the service, I mention that we have a, a prayer room over here. There's even a sign on the door now that says prayer room, so you can't get lost. The other one takes you outside. You don't want to do that. You want to in a prayer room. A prayer room has been uh, recently remodeled, too. It's really very lovely in there. There's some comfortable places to sit and so forth. Quiet, peaceful. A good place to go and think. If what we've been talking about this morning is really kind of working around in your mind, you want to sound, sort a little of this out. You know, if you just jump out of your seat, get in the hustle and bustle of the crowd, two, three people are going to start talking to you, you're going to begin to think about where am I having lunch and... You know, off it goes for another day. If you're turning some of this around in your mind, get, get alone for a little bit. Five minutes, ten minutes. Talk to God. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know God personally. You don't really understand things like the atonement. Why did Jesus have to die? What does it mean when someone says to me, Jesus died for your sins? What does the word for mean? What's the significance of the resurrection anyway? What's Christianity really all about? There will be some folks standing over here near to that lighted cross. They'll be available to help you with questions like that. You should come and get your questions answered. Don't just wander out of here and you know, kind of blow it off again. Another Sunday. You're not here by mistake. You're here by appointment. If God is moving in your heart right now, you know it. Don't leave until you've done business with your Creator. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we have been rendered without excuse. Guilty as charged. Deserving of Your wrath because of our willful unbelief. The very arrogance that we would take the truth, the knowledge that we have, and subvert it into some foolish theory that would dishonor You. Our Father, we rightly deserve the condemnation that will come to all who refuse. We thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You that He came, that He lived perfectly, and that He died vicariously for us. Thank You that You've opened our eyes. Thank You that You have left us not just in darkness, 
And You've given us the light of the Gospel in the face of Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.